Well, Heavenly Father, we we come before you, and as we open your word this morning, we ask, Lord, that you'd please teach us, and you'd help us understand, Lord, and I pray that our ears would be open, our hearts would be open, and we'd use the word today as a measuring rod for our own lives, Lord. We wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be hearers and also doers. So Lord, we give you thanks that it is by your grace that we are here today. We give you thanks for your word, and I ask that you please help me handle your word correctly and help me preach this morning, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 2. That's John chapter 2. We're going to start this morning by touching on those last three verses at the end of chapter 2. That's from verse 23 to 25. Last time we finished out Jesus clearing the temple and we left these three verses of chapter 2 untouched and we did that on purpose because these verses before us today are going to bridge us into one of the most important conversations recorded for us in the Bible and that's the conversation recorded in John 3 between Nicodemus and Jesus. So we'll start by these three verses in chapter 2 starting with verse 23. Let's start by considering them. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Let's stop there. You, you remember our last two studies that we've done, part one and part two, of Jesus cleansing the temple. Well, it's important to note that this verse comes off the back of that. And it's important to remember that we're still in the exact same week as the week that Jesus cleans the temple. We're still in the Passover week. We are still in that festival, that feast. And it's recorded in the text for us that while Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, he was performing signs. Now we don't know for sure what those signs were. We've only been told one of those signs, which is the cleansing of the temple. But the the cleansing of the temple isn't the only display of his miraculous power that he's been doing at this feast. He's also been performing other signs. And the text says that many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Many believed in his name. We read that and we think, wow, that's wonderful. It's fantastic, right? This is the purpose of the signs. That's the purpose of John's account. If you remember John's purpose found in John 20, 31, these things have been written so that you may believe. People in a very real sense are reading the signs that Jesus is doing and it says that they're believing in him. And not just some people, but many people during the feast believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. This is great. This is what we want, right? But verse 24, let's read verse 24. But Jesus, 
on his part was not entrusting himself to them. That's a fascinating statement. What do you mean? Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Why wasn't he entrusting himself to them? Is my question. Well, the answer is in the end of verse 24 and 25. We read, For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knows all men and he knows what is in all men. Now how does that explain it? How does this help us understand why he wasn't entrusting himself? Well, it helps us and it explains it because Jesus, being God, being omniscient, could see something in these people, in their belief, that was lacking. We don't know exactly what was in their hearts, only Jesus knows. But we can conclude that these people were believers in Jesus, but they weren't true believers. They did not believe savingly. They did not possess saving faith. We know that they were attracted to his signs and that awakened in them a sort of faith. But it's a faith that Jesus could not commit himself to. They had a false faith. An inadequate faith. A superficial faith. A shallow faith. In the original language it literally reads, many were believing in Jesus, but Jesus was not believing in them. He couldn't entrust himself to these people. Why? Because he knew their hearts. He saw what was in them. He saw their belief. And he saw that they weren't genuine believers. It's not because he didn't like them or he's a prejudice of some sort. No, Romans 2.11 says that God has no favorites. It's simply because they did not possess saving faith. They had a false faith in him. And someone may say at this point, so you're telling me that I can believe in Jesus and not be saved? To which I would answer, yes. You can be believing in Jesus and not be saved if you're not believing in him in a salvific way. And it's here that I want to introduce you to the focus of this sermon because this morning we're going to go through to verse 10 of chapter 3 and we're going to focus our attention towards three aspects of saving faith. Three aspects of saving faith. This is so that we can understand just some key components of genuine faith and genuine salvation. And I'll use the whiteboard behind me because with these three aspects of saving faith, I want to contrast them with three aspects of false faith. 
Because even though chapter 3 is a different chapter, which, by the way, we put in the chapter in verse numbers, they're not in the original, this theme of salvation, what constitutes a true believer and a false believer, is the theme of at least the first half of chapter 3. The conversation with Nicodemus. The main emphasis of the conversation is on rebirth, the common phrase being born again, which is the Spirit's work in bringing to life those who are God's children, and we'll, we'll spend time on that, absolutely. But I want to do so under this title of false faith versus saving faith. And I'll chuck that up on the whiteboard now. And we'll use that to structure our contrasting. Now, these terms, false faith and saving faith, aren't terms that are used explicitly in the text. You may read that and say, well, I can't see those words, and you're right. But I would encourage you to see that they are most certainly implied, this theme of false belief and true belief, genuine salvation. And we'll see that as we go through. And you'll see that these three aspects of saving faith that we'll look at will come out to us directly from the text. But before we get into it, I just want to remind you that this warning of there being people who claim to be believers and claim to be saved who aren't believers and aren't saved is literally warned all throughout the New Testament, especially in the life of Christ and his ministry. Christ time and time again warns us that there will be false believers in the world and in the church, and he gives us clear instruction on what a true believer is. From the parable of the sower to the parable of the wheat and tears to telling us that we must count the costs, saying, whoever is not willing to take up their cross and follow me is not fit to be my disciple, to using analogies that warn us of wolves among sheep and telling us to be on guard and there's goats among sheep and telling us to look at the fruit and telling us that the house that is built upon the sand are those who hear his words whereas the house that is built on the rock are those who hear his words and then obey them. Christ is constantly warning us and giving us instruction throughout his ministry of this unsettling yet necessary reality that the way to him is the narrow way. And there are few who find it. And that many on that day will say to him, Lord, Lord, but he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Now that's frightening, that's sobering, that's unsettling. Yet it's necessary that we sober ourselves in regard to these truths, especially on this topic of false faith and saving faith. More often than not, the line that separates these two can become blurry. 
But it's crucial that we recognize the difference because the difference between those two is the difference between one going to heaven and one going to hell. So my prayer today is that as we make our way to verse 10, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word and examine ourselves and use the word as a measuring rod because everything we've covered thus far comes back to us in this chapter, chapter 3 of John's Gospel. So let's start by reading, and we'll read down to verse 10. It says, Now now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? So our text starts with us being introduced to a man named Nicodemus. And from the text we're told that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Not only is he a Pharisee, but he's also a ruler. He's a man in authority. And he's called by our Lord, the teacher of Israel. Now what we know about Pharisees is that that they are the apostate religious leaders of Israel. So Nicodemus, not only is he a religious man, but he's part of the corrupt religious elite. Being a Pharisee, he's at the top of the religious system. And it seems that he's not just at the top, but he's at the very peak of the religious system. He is the teacher of Israel. He's a prominent religious man, a very religious man. He would have been a morally upright man in society, a man of the law, a man others would have looked to as an example and gone to him for guidance and teaching of the Old Testament. But to put it bluntly, Nicodemus is a hypocrite. All Pharisees are. Our Lord throughout his ministry called them out on their hypocrisy time and time again. They liked to appear righteous to all that they could, but on the inside they were still dead in their sins. They were unregenerate. They were full of pride. They were full of greed. They liked to promote themselves as holy men, Yet at the same time, they were the ones corrupting the temple into their own business scheme. The Pharisees completely missed the clear teaching of the Old Testament that salvation is through faith alone. 
and they devoted themselves to their work-based legalistic system in order to try and attain righteousness from God. And they put this legalistic system not only on themselves, but on everyone else around them and everyone that they taught, they told to do the same. The Pharisees were also the arch enemies of Jesus, along with a few other religious groups, but primarily it was the Pharisees who opposed him. They were experts in the Old Testament, or at least they thought they were. So they, of all people, should have recognized Jesus as their Messiah. But they were so blinded by their hypocrisy and their religious system of legalism that they didn't recognize Jesus and they opposed Jesus on almost everything that he did. Now, in saying that, there's something about this Pharisee, Nicodemus, that that's different. We already see a difference. All the other Pharisees are hostile towards Jesus. They're against him. Remember, Jesus just divinely booted them out of the temple. But there's something in Nicodemus that's not against Jesus, but wants to seek Jesus out. He wants to talk with him. We know that he's been observing the signs at the Passover because of the way he greets Jesus. He says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And because of these signs, he's drawn to Jesus and he wants to just go talk with the man. Now, I suspect that in Nicodemus's heart, there must have been something bothering him, something niggling away at him or accusing him of his hypocrisy and causing him to question everything. And I say that because we will see, as we go through this, where the Lord swings the conversation. But we'll get to that when we get to that. Regardless, Nicodemus wants to go talk with Jesus, and he goes, and he meets with him at night. And we can commend him for that. That's commendable. Other Pharisees didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They wanted him to go away. But Nicodemus goes... And talks with him. Now it's important to note that Nicodemus is one of the many that was mentioned back in verse 23 of chapter 2. He's been drawn to Jesus because of the signs, because of the miracles. And we know that because in greeting Jesus, he mentions the signs. He must have witnessed these signs taking place and he concluded in his own heart that because of these signs, Jesus must be sent from God. But along with the many in verse 23, it's, a, it's crucial to note that Nicodemus is one who has belief in Jesus, but it's a belief that Jesus can't commit himself to. Now that's evident in the greeting as well. He greets him saying, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Did you pick up why Jesus can't commit himself to that line of reasoning? Remember John's purpose. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the teacher. No. No. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that you may believe that he is the Messiah, God in human flesh. 
Nicodemus is not a possessor of saving faith because his view of Jesus is that of a teacher. And while that's one of Christ's functions, you can't stop there. It has to go beyond. Saving faith goes past seeing Jesus as just a teacher. And saving faith recognizes Jesus for who he really is, and that's Lord. And it's from here that I want to pull out the first aspect of saving faith, and that's, firstly, saving faith recognizes Jesus as Lord. False faith falls short of calling Jesus Lord. And I'll write that up. Nicodemus is a man that has a faith in Jesus, but it's a faith that Jesus can't entrust himself to. Why? Because he doesn't recognize him as the Messiah. He doesn't say Christ. He says teacher, sent from God. That's superficial faith. That's faith that does not save. Now, granted, we could say that Nicodemus's view of Jesus is a place to start, at least he's recognizing something about Jesus, right? At least there's something there, sure, but it's crucial to note that he's falling short of saving faith because you can't stay there. Part of saving faith is recognizing Jesus as Lord. Nicodemus's view of Jesus is a place to start, but it's not a place to end. It's not a place to sit. You can't stay there for very long because it's a dangerous place to be in. It's not the narrow way. Jesus has to be Lord. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and the application I would draw from that is for us just simply to ask our own hearts, how do I view Jesus? Who is Jesus to me? Is he Lord? Is he God in human flesh? Or is he just a teacher, a, a good man, a prophet even? If it's the latter, then we're short of saving faith. Now let's continue. After Nicodemus greets Jesus, Jesus then responds to him, and Jesus' response is fascinating. And it's fascinating because he can see Nicodemus better than Nicodemus can even perceive himself. And he gets right to the core issue of Nicodemus's heart. Jesus isn't interested in discussing signs with this man. He doesn't want to spend his time on that or small talk. He knows all there is to know about this man. He can see everything that's going on in his heart, all the secrets of his heart, all the worries of his heart. Everything is laid before him because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything there is to know about man and everything that is in man, as verse 25 of chapter 2 taught us earlier. So he just cuts it. He cuts it straight. 
And he goes right to the core issue of Nicodemus's soul and what's going on in his mind. He reads his mind, he reads his heart, he can see his spiritual bankruptcy, his hypocrisy, his worry, and whatever else is going on inside this man. And look what he says. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, that's Jesus' way of saying, listen up. The truth I'm about to tell you is vitally important. Nicodemus and everyone else in this world, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You cannot even see the kingdom, let alone enter it, unless you are born again. Born again. What are we to make of that? What does that mean? The literal translation of born again is to be born from above. Born again. Born from above. You must be born from above. Jesus is drawing on the analogy of birth. And he couldn't be any more clear in choosing this analogy or illustration. But how do we understand it? That a man must be reborn. Well, it's straightforward. And we understand it like this. We must be recreated. But how many of us contributed anything to our physical birth? How much did each of us contribute to our physical birth? Nothing. The answer is nothing. None of us contributed anything to our physical birth. We didn't contribute anything to our conception, the development of our cells, our body, and then the act of birthing us. Birth happened to us. And the point is this. Just as we contributed nothing to our physical birth, so we too contribute nothing to our spiritual birth. There is nothing we can do that will grant us access to the kingdom. But rather something must happen to us. Namely, we must be born from above. We must be recreated, born again. To be accepted into the kingdom, we must be birthed again. We need to be recreated, but just as our physical birth was something we didn't contribute to, it's the same with our spiritual birth. What he's saying to Nicodemus is this. All your religious activity, all your Judaism, all your works, all your good deeds are worthless. They have done nothing for you. You haven't even earned salvation. You can't earn salvation because you can't earn favor with God. Rather, you need something to happen to you. 
And that something is an act in which you take no part of. You must be recreated. You need to be born again to see the kingdom. And this is a work that you can't do. This is something outside the realm of human ability. We can't do it. Which leads us to our second aspects of saving faith, and that is that saving faith recognizes that we contribute nothing to our salvation. And on the contrast to that, false faith clings to human achievement. You know, you may be surprised to hear that there are only two religions in the world. Only two. The first is that of human achievement. And the second is that of divine grace. And what you can do is you can lump all the religions in the world but biblical Christianity into this category of human achievement. Human achievement says, well... I did this, and I did that. I've been a good boy. My good works will outweigh my bad. Therefore, God will let me into heaven. Which is every other religion other than biblical Christianity. Christianity doesn't say that. No, the Christian says, even my good works are filthy rags before God. And heaven is only open to me because... God has been gracious because God sent his only son to save me. Not because of anything that I've done. It's only because of what he's done. You may remember back in Matthew 7, you don't have to turn there, when when Jesus is teaching us that many on the last day will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Have you ever noticed the case that these people try and make before the Lord as their defense? They say, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we perform many miracles? Notice they're trying to defend themselves Because of works. They're pointing to their works. A man who possesses saving faith would never make a case like that. Saving faith would never say, but Lord, didn't I do this? Lord, didn't I? No, because saving faith recognizes there's nothing, no work that contributes to my salvation. Alistair Begg, in answering the question, if you were to die tonight and were standing at the gates of heaven and they say to you, why should we let you in? Alistair Begg says that if you and I ever answer that in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. If we ever say, because I, because I believed, because I repented, because I did this, We've already gone wrong. 
Yes, we're commanded to believe, and Jesus will only entrust himself to those who believe, but our belief is simply just our cry to the Saviour to come and save us. It's not because I did anything to get into heaven. It's because he. It's because he saved me. It's because he died for me. It's because he birthed me again. My salvation is not earned by works. My salvation is by the grace of God. Salvation is God's work. For there was nothing I could do to save myself. For I'm a wretch. Now let's go back to our conversation. For Nicodemus to hear these words would have been shocking. This is like nothing he's ever heard before. His whole life, he's been adding and adding and subtracting and subtracting things to his life in accordance to the law and tradition. He's devoted himself to works that he thought earned himself favor with God and distanced himself from things that would take that favor away. And for Jesus to tell him, everything you've worked towards amounts to nothing. would have just devastated him. And then to tell him, it's not another work you need. It's not something you can do. It's a whole new life you're in need of. You need to be brought to life. You need to be born again. It's not exactly what he was expecting to hear. So verse 4, he responds, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus says, How? How? How can I do it? How can I birth myself again? It's impossible. That's impossible to do. And he got it. You can't birth yourself again. That's the point that Jesus is getting across. This is a work that is impossible for you. Salvation is impossible. This is not something you can do. And Nicodemus gets it, but he's dumbfounded. I mean, what what can he say? He's never heard something like this before. So Jesus alludes to something he ought to be familiar with in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? This is something that Nicodemus should have known. He should have known because this is a reference back to the Old Testament. If you turn with me to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36 And verses 25 and 27, Ezekiel 36 is God talking to the nation of Israel. 
And he's giving them a new covenant promise. And it says in verse 25 to verse 27... Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." To be born of water is to have God clean you. To sprinkle clean water on you and be clean. And to be born from the Spirit is for God to renew you, make you a new person, replace your heart, and then dwell in you by His Spirit. That's what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. There's also one other thing I want you to notice while we're here in Ezekiel 36. Notice all the I wills. God talking. I will. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will put my spirit. It's all I will. I will. I will. God talking. That's because salvation is not a work of man but a work of God. This is God's work that he does in the life of the sinner. Not something the sinner can do in his own life. And you can flick back to John. But we learned that in John chapter 1, didn't we? Verse 12 and verse 13 of John chapter 1. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but because of the will of God. If anyone is born again, it's because God has willed it and God has done that work in his life. For to be born again is, a, is an act that only God can do. Now back to John chapter 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's simply stating what we've been saying. The flesh can only give birth to flesh. Even if you could somehow birth yourself again, you'd still only be flesh. You'd be born into flesh what you need is to be born of the Spirit. And it's only the Spirit that can bring about that birth. To be born again is a work that only God by His Spirit does. Verse 7, Do not be amazed that I say, said to you, You must be born again. Listen to our Lord's language. You must be born again. It is a must. You must be born of water and the Spirit. John Wesley used to preach often on that truth. That one time after he was finished preaching, a person came up to him and asked him, Mr. Wesley, why do you keep telling us that we must be born again? And his answer was, because you must be born again. 
It's a must. This is a necessary requirement. This doesn't just apply to some and not others. We must be born again to enter God's kingdom. It is a must. Anyone who is not born again, anyone who is not born of the Spirit, will not see God's kingdom. You must have God do this work in your life in order to be saved. He has to sprinkle clean water on you and cleanse you. And he has to replace your heart. And then he has to dwell in you by his spirit. And saving faith recognizes this. Saving faith recognizes that without God and his grace, I'm doomed. I'm done. There's nothing I can do. The hymn goes, Nothing in my hands I bring, Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless look to thee for grace. Foal I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Saviour, or I die. That's the cry of saving faith. Salvation is not by human achievement. It's not human achievement. It's not works. But it's divine grace. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now in this verse, the spirit and the wind are compared with one another. Just as you can hear the wind, but you don't know where it comes from, so is everyone who is born of the spirit. The spirit, in a way, is like the wind. And I'll explain how. Just as we can't see the wind, we can't see the spirit. Just as we can't control the wind, we can't control the spirit. But just as we can see the effects of the wind, so we can see the effects of the Spirit. The point is this. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. You can't see the Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Spirit. When the wind is blowing, you can see the effect of it blowing through the trees, and you can hear it, and you can see it moving the trees. And in the same way... It's the same with the Spirit. If the Spirit has been in our lives, you will see the effects of the Spirit. You will see the effects of someone who's been born again, who's been born of the Spirit, because there will be that effect in their life. In other words, there will be evidence that the Spirit has been there, that the Spirit's there. There will be fruit in our lives. Which leads us to our third and last aspect of saving faith. And that is, saving faith is always accompanied by evidence in the life of the believer. Saving faith always bears fruit.
The truth is, just as we know where the wind has been by the effects it causes, so we can see where the Spirit has been in the, in the lives of people by the effects He causes. It. He causes. If the Spirit has birthed us, then simply put, it will be evident to those around us. It will be evident to ourselves because of the effect the Spirit has had. He's given us new life. We will be producing fruit, righteous fruit. We will have new life. We will be a new man or a woman. If the Spirit has birthed us, there will be change. There will be change. And therefore the negative is true. Where there is no change, where there is no effects, where there is no fruit, well then there's no work of the Spirit. Just as on the still day there's no effects of the wind because the wind is absent, so it is in our lives. Where there is no fruit, the Spirit is absent. Where there is no evidence, there is no saving faith. False faith produces no fruit. False faith is simply an add-on to one's life. There is no change. There is no fruit. There is no new life. There's just the same old, same old, but perhaps a verbal confession. Now, am I saying when you're born again, you're perfect? No. Absolutely, there's a journey. But there will be some fruit. Even if it's just one fruit hanging on the tree, there will be something there. James 2 refers to this, faith without works. He calls it dead. He says, you believe but there's no evidence in your life, you do well. Even the demons do that. He calls it demonic faith. Even the demons believe. But saving faith produces fruit. Another word for fruit would be obedience. Saving faith is accompanied by obedience. Without obedience, there is no saving faith. Well then what should one do if they have false faith? If they think they have false faith, do we then add works to our faith? No. The equation is not faith plus works equals salvation. The problem is the quality of the faith. The equation is saving faith equals salvation and plus works. Then there's evidence of that saving faith. It's not more works one would need in their life to be saved. It's the quality of their faith that they need. And the application we draw from that is just simply to examine our own lives. Can we see 
that the Spirit's been in our lives? Have we been born from above? Do I see the effects? Am I bearing fruit? Is there change? Am I a new creation? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, crea- a new creature. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. Now back to our text, verse 9. Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? How? His entire world has just been rocked. He's never heard such things before. And Jesus says to him in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? He's saying these are the basics. These are the basics. This is how God has ordained it from the beginning. This is the teaching of the Old Testament that salvation is by faith alone. Essentially, Nicodemus, you should have already known these things. You should have. You're without excuse that you don't know these things. You should have known that you are saved by divine grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. And we'll leave our text there for today. I want to close just briefly by following up on the life of Nicodemus because I'm curious, really. I'm, I was fascinated. What happened to this man after a conversation like that? Was he born again? Was he? Was he? Well, in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus appears two more times. And he appears at the end of chapter 7. And you can flick there, chapter 7. And at the end of it, verses 50, we see his name mentioned. But let's read from verse. 48, just to get the context of it, and the, the wider context of the chapter is that there's division over who Jesus is, but from verse 48 it just says, um, sorry, verse 47, the Pharisees then answered them, you have not been led astray, have you? No, not one of the rulers or Pharisees have believed in him, has he? But the crowd which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our Lord does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And then everyone dispersed and went to their home. That's the first place. Second place, sorry in the John's Gospel that we see him. We see him again. Um, chapter 19, if you want to flick there as well. 
chapter 19, Nicodemus is mentioned in verses 38 to 42. Now this is the end of John's account. So we're at the end of Jesus' ministry and it's actually after he's been crucified. And they got permission to get his body and to go put it in a tomb. And look who shows up. Nicodemus is here from verse 38 to 42. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a a disciple of Jesus, but a a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who has first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys and a hundred pounds, about a hundred pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. The question then is, is, was he born again? Was he saved? It's evident back in chapter 3 that he's not. But I'm confident that after reading these two accounts of Nicodemus that we're reading the account of a rebirthed man. The Spirit of God has moved in his life and he's been born from above. He possessed a faith that Jesus could commit himself to. Now how can I say that? Because of the third aspect up there. We see the effects of the Spirit in his life. He was defending Jesus in chapter 7, and then in chapter 19 he's wrapping his body in spices. You could sum those two acts up as acts of worship. That's what they were. An unsaved Pharisee wouldn't do such a thing. Not to Jesus at least. So that's Nicodemus's life. But if I could add one more thing, what about our lives? What are we to do with this? What are we to do with the conversation we've just eavesdropped on between Nicodemus and Jesus? Perhaps you're sitting here and this message has rocked you a bit. Perhaps you're like Nicodemus and you've never heard such a thing before. Well, I want to come to where you are. It is true that there is nothing we can do to birth ourselves again and it's a necessary requirement to be born again to enter the kingdom But I want to remind you of the words of Jesus. Because even though there's nothing we can do to birth ourselves, there is one thing we can do. We can come to him and ask him in faith. And in John 6, 37, Jesus says, He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. We can come to him recognizing he's Lord, 
recognizing our own spiritual bankruptcy and recognizing our need for new life. And Jesus says, He who comes to me that way, with that faith, I will in no wise cast out. Because that's saving faith. That's a faith that Jesus can commit himself to. Nicodemus in chapter 3 is an example to us of false faith like the many. But don't be like the many. Nicodemus's life was changed. His sins were forgiven, not by his works, but by the Spirit's work, and so can your life be. Do you want Jesus to entrust himself to you? And come to him in saving faith. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, what can we say after that? But thank you, thank you, that Lord, we were hell-bound and held under the weight of God's wrath and our sin was just binding us, Father. And You looked down upon us in grace and you came and you made the way. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment of our sins. Thank you for birthing us again. Thank you for making us a new creation. Thank you for the work that you do in our lives. <clears throat> and I pray, Father, that we would be men and women here today who possess saving faith, uh, people who you can entrust yourself to. I pray that we'd examine our own hearts in that and Lord you would walk with us in that and if there's any of us who aren't born again may you do your work in their lives and birth them again Lord and wash them clean of their sin and place your spirit within them. I thank you, Father. I thank you, Jesus, so much for your work on the cross that has made this all possible, for it's impossible on our end. But from your end, Lord, you've done the work and you do it. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well,